Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings, and uh, we're going to be going there. Uh, first off this morning, 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 30. Uh, our series text uh, is found in Revelations 3:19 through 22, and it says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on, the, on my throne, as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to be a church that hears what the Spirit is saying and what the Spirit is trying to tell us. Amen? Amen. Last week I spoke about establishing the altar. I said this. I said establishing the altar must happen in the midst of a rebellious a rebellion against it. I talked to you about the attack on the altar, and even in our text that we're using here, uh, where Elijah is facing down or has a showdown with the the, the uh, prophets of Baal, uh, we see this blatant attack against the corporate altar taking place. I also said that establishing the altar demands a showdown between light and darkness, and that establishing the altar exposes the foolishness of sin and highlights those in pursuit of God. Can I just take a little caveat here and just say that when you come into the altar and when you find yourself face to face with Jesus and you find yourself in a situation where suddenly His majesty is present on the scene, it doesn't just have to do with sin being exposed as foolishness and the highlighting of the righteous. There is such a distinction that takes place even in the situations that we deal with on a current basis in our lives. In other words, when I come into the altar and I find myself face to face with the majestic God, the problems that I thought were huge and the problems that I thought were magnificent and the problems that I thought were overwhelming seem to minimize in retrospect to who He is. They just come into view. And they minimize in His majesty and His, the maximization of who He is. So today I want to pick up in our text in verse 30 of 1 Kings 18 as I continue with you in the message, establishing the altar. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your spirit that is in this house. Thank you, Lord, for the great things that you are doing through our people, Lord, through our children. We're grateful for who you are in our lives, Lord, and we want to find new ways to express that everywhere we go. We're asking that today, Lord, as I preach this message, establishing the altar, that you would just help me to communicate truths, and principles that we can establish as a people, that we can live on from now until you return, and that, God, it would not go away. It would not be something that was minimized. But, Lord, these encounters and the place of encounter, the altar, is a place where we continue to meet with you. It's a place where we continue to see you. It's a place where your word is continually revealed to us. And, Lord, it's where we set our minds as flint to pursue you relentlessly. We love you today, God, and we're asking for your blessing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 30. 
It says this, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. What we've had happen so far is that Elijah calls for this showdown between the prophets of Baal and him alone who is the representative of the God Most High. And he says, here's what we're going to do. It's been a drought for three years. Your God is supposed to be the God of rain. He hadn't been able to deliver. So now we're going to see who really is the God of Israel. And he calls for this showdown. They show up. And he says, I'm going to let you guys go first. And you go ahead and have every opportunity to call on the power of your God. And so for many hours, these men, these 450 prophets, they cut the bull in pieces, they lay it on the altar, they get everything ready, and they call upon their God for hours and hours. The Bible says previous to verse 30 here that they cut themselves. They jumped around on the altar until it was broken down into pieces, calling upon the name of their God. And this is what the passage says. It says, no one heard them, no one answered, no one paid attention. The reason no one heard them, no one answered, and no one paid attention because there is a false gods in this world that cannot respond to your needs. There is false things that are set up that you think you may need in your life, but when it comes down to it, they won't be able to deliver you. The only thing that can help you and the only person that can come through for you, his name is Jesus Christ. And when he comes on the scene, everything changes. And so now Elijah says, now it's my turn. And it's time to show you what my God can do. And in verse 30, he calls the people near to him and he says, look, I'm going to show you who is the God of Israel. And he says he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. This passage of scripture here, verse 30, really sets the context for the message that I'm going to share with you today because Elijah brings those people into the process that want to be a part of the process. And he begins to set up things for a long-term success. I'm going to say that to you again. The scripture sets the context for us. He says, look, come here to me. Come near to me and watch what I'm going to do because I'm about to repair the altar of the Lord. He's inviting these people who have been a part of a broken system, part of a system that has failed them for the last three years. It's not working out in their life. And he's saying to them, look, I want you to come close to me and I'm going to show you what does work. It's an invitation. Can I just take a moment here and talk about leadership in the sense that what here Elijah is doing is he is determined not to establish the altar for one day in the nation of Israel, but he is trying to establish the altar for the long haul. Elijah starts this process of establishing the altar before the people with a statement, and that statement is this, come near to me. Every good leader, say good leader, Every good leader knows that if you're going to build something that is significant, something that matters, something that is of value, something that you can offer to your God as a token of your efforts and your, and your endeavors on this earth, if you're going to offer him something of significance and long term, it must involve other people. Now, you didn't hear what I just said. So if you don't want me to belabor the point, listen... If you are going to be a leader and you are going to do something that impacts the kingdom of God, it must involve other people. It cannot just be about you and what you do. It cannot be only about what you put your hand to. It also has to be about who you're bringing along in the process. Elijah is a great man of God. Would you agree? 
He understands some things about operating in the kingdom. And if we want to understand some things about operating in the kingdom, we ought to watch closely those who know how to do it. And so we have a good example here in Elijah. And he says, look, come near to me. I'm bringing you in on this process, and I want you to watch what I do so that when I'm gone, you'll still know how to do it. Amen. If it's not bigger than you, it will never outlast you. And if it doesn't outlast you, it will always be limited by your limitations. If it's not bigger than you, it will never outlast you. And if it doesn't outlast you, what value truly is it to the kingdom that is eternal? What value is it to a kingdom that never ends? What value is it to a kingdom whose God is the same God yesterday and today and forever? It must outlast you. It can't be limited by our limitations. And what I fail in and what I'm not good at, I must surround myself with people who can do it better than me. If what we are doing is for God, it should never be limited by us or subject to our inadequacies, but rather be built upon the limitless nature of our God, because in my weaknesses, He is made strong. Ephesians 4.16 mirrors this sentiment, and it says this, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Somebody say every Every joint, that joint represents you as a member of the church of the living God. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Come near to me. Come watch what I do. Let me duplicate my behavior and principles in you that will sustain the ministry we are working on for a long time. It says, so all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Come near to me. That statement is an invite. Everyone is invited. But I assure you that although everyone was invited, not everyone came. Just because everyone's invited doesn't mean everybody comes. If you've learned anything in church as a pastor, you learned that just because you have something doesn't mean everybody's going to come. Amen? I've had some major events that I put a lot of energy into and I was the only show. Amen? It just happens sometimes. Come near to me. Everyone is invited. I assure you not everyone came. You have three kinds of people that are gathered at Mount Carmel. This will help somebody if you'll listen and write it down. Put it in your mind. Plant it in your heart. You have three kinds of people that are gathered at Mount Carmel that day. Those who want you to fail... I can assure you that there were people in the crowd that day that were not on Elijah's side. There were people in that crowd that day that even though he invited them to come near and be a part of the process, they said, I don't want to be a part of the process. Rather, I would rather sit here and watch you fail. I'm hoping that you fail. The second type of person that's there is the person who just wants to watch and see what happens. They don't really care if you fail or not. They just want to watch and see what happens. And the third type of person that's represented in Mount Carmel that's in the crowd is those people who want you to see you succeed. Those who want you to fail. Those who just want to watch and see what happens. And those who want to see you succeed. 
And I'm telling you today that those three kinds of people exist in every single area of your life. Every single area of your life, you have people that want you to fail. They don't want to see you succeed. Your failure makes them feel better about their own lives. And they don't want success being around them in any way, shape, or form. And so their desire is for that you fail. There are those people who are uninvolved and they don't care if you fail or succeed. They're just really non-impacting people in your life. But there are those that do want you to succeed. There are those who want to be a part of the processes of your life. There are those that want to see you become the best person that you can be. And those are the people that you must surround yourself with. Don't focus on the people who want you to fail. There's plenty of them. Ignore them and move on because God will send you people that want to see you succeed in life as well. We spend a lot of time trying to convert people who want us to fail to become our friends. Spend the energy where it counts. Amen? Invest the energy where you're going to get some return. Invest the energy where somebody can come along and help you accomplish what you want to accomplish and you in turn can do the same for them. These these kind of people exist in the church. Are you serious, Pastor? Yes, I'm serious. They exist in the church. They exist in your personal life. We have to be open and invite people to come alongside us in our journey. But just know that everyone that is coming or even those who want to come, are not necessarily on your team. Elijah didn't invite the prophets of Baal to come near, right? He invited all the people. And so there's some people that we don't even bother with because we know they're not on our team. Trying to help somebody here that's trying to drag along some baggage this morning. If you've got some people in your life that have just been bags to you and you've been trying to b- drag them along and get them to come along on your side and help you advance your life, it's time to cut it loose and keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Can I just take some dramatic license here for just a moment and just, even though we know, we don't know if this was in the text, we don't know if this was part of the scene or not, we can just perhaps began to think about and dream about the possibility that in that crowd that day, Elijah was a man of God. He didn't need anybody else to be a part of what he was doing. He was able to accomplish what he needed to do with just him and God. But if he wanted this to outlast him, then he needs to bring people in on the process. Can we just dream for a minute that maybe in that crowd that day, there was a young uh, man named Elisha that was watching what was happening? He wasn't a part of the prophet's school. He wasn't a part of this scene on a regular basis. But perhaps in the crowd that day there was a young man and he was standing on the outskirts and he was looking and he was watching this man of God come down. And when Elijah said, won't you come near and be a part of this process, something jumped and leaped inside of this young man named Elisha. And he said, that's somebody I could get behind. That's somebody I could follow. That's something that speaks to the inside of my heart. It's something that I want to be a part of someday. I could be the legacy that goes on after Elijah passes me the mantle. Is it possible? Oh, I believe it's possible. I believe it's likely that if we will bring people into the process, we don't know what we'll discover and what we'll find and what we'll be able to invest ourselves in that will live long past us. One of the things that I'm trying to get into your spirit today 
is that if we want the altar to be established in the church, it has to be established beyond me. It has to live after I'm gone. It has to be something that translates into my children's lives. It has to be something that my grandchildren will still value and make a part of the core of who they are. And it's something that must be ingrained in the DNA of every person that calls themselves a child of God. How do we do that? We pass it on, we teach, we train, we equip, and we show forth an example. 1 Kings 18.31 That's the Introduction. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. The first thing we must do to establish the altar is this. Point number one, establish the symbolism of the altar. How do we put it into another generation How do we establish this to grow beyond us? How do we build an experience with God that will translate to many, many generations to come? First, we must establish the symbolism of the altar. What has the altar meant to us? What has the altar meant to me? What has the altar done in my life? How have I been changed with an encounter that took place at the altar? What happened to me there that I can share with my kids and grandkids and begin to put inside of their hearts the very things that have translated to me and shift them to them so that the symbols of the altar not only represent my generation, but they represent generations to come. What the altar has meant helps us to understand what it means. For the nation of Israel, it represented the foundations of the entire nation. If you'll notice in the scripture here, it says Elijah took 12 stones. At this particular time in history, Israel was really divided into two nations. There was the two tribes of Judah that were in Judah, and there was 10 tribes that made up Israel. But Elijah doesn't get 10 stones when he's dealing with Israel and then go over to Judah and perform the same miracle over there and gather two stones and builds an altar. No, he gathers 12 stones. Why? Because it represents one nation. God wasn't a part of the dysfunction that drove the nation apart. But He is a part of the solution that will ultimately bring the nation back together. And He's building upon the altar that very encounter, that moment, that experience that will bring all of these things back together. He establishes the altar built upon the unity of a nation. We want the altar built in our lives. We have to build it upon the unity of Christians everywhere. The unity and the representation of what it means. He establishes the altar. He builds the altar with these 12 stones. And he begins to build this and lay the foundation for what miracle God is about to do. I asked you a moment ago, what is the altar represented in your life? To me, the altar represents a heritage. It represents a heritage of a nation. It represents... A a, a tribe. It represents a people committed to serving God. What do you remember that has happened to you at the altar? The altar represents past success. It represents moments where I come into a place and encounter with God and darkness was driven out of my life and a new level of light shone in. It represents these places when I won the victory 
and overcame the enemy advancing upon my life. It represents past successes. It's a symbol. The success that we've experienced are symbols that we must share with future generations to establish the altar. It represents past ways the Lord has established His people. When has God come to your rescue? When has God delivered you? When has God come and strengthened the foundation of your life? When has that happened to you in the altar? It speaks of past words spoken over you that define your future. The text says here in verse 31, To whom the word of the Lord had come. To whom the word of the Lord had come. I love when I'm in the altar. And someone comes along and says, Hey, I just is it alright if I just share with you something that the Lord spoke to me? And they speak a word in your life that God's already began to speak to you. And it just comes along and confirms what you already know God is trying to say to you. I live on those words. I live on those words, those encounters in the altars where God has spoken a word over my life. And even though the world is speaking something contrary, even though what I see daily may be speaking something completely contrary, when God gives the word in the altar, all those other things vanish away. It speaks of past times when God redefined who you are. He gave you a new name, no longer a Jacob, a cheater, but Israel, a prince. We see this encounter in Genesis 32, 27. He says, so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And he said, no longer will you be called Jacob. He said, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. There is a great struggle that takes place in the altar. And it's between God and it's between your flesh. But when God prevails in that area, he will redefine for you a new direction in your life. He will speak over you a new piece of your identity. And new revelation and new understanding of who you are in him will be revealed. We must establish the symbolism of the altar and remember what it has stood for for us, what it has stood for for others, and what it stands for in the future. Symbols of the past are always faith's building blocks for the future. And when we take those tokens and those symbols and we use them to advance our lives, we're putting building blocks of faith that help us to lift to new levels, higher heights, deeper depths with the Lord. So again, let me ask you, what has the altar meant to you? What will, it, what will it mean to your children and grandchildren? Verse 32. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. The second thing we must do to establish the altar is establish the structure of the altar. We talked about establishing the symbolism of the altar. Now we're going to talk about establishing the structure of the altar. Verse 32, then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Any structure must be put in place in the name of the Lord or it is of no value. 
And here's something that we must understand this morning. Those of you who have been raised in Pentecost must hear what I'm saying. Without structure, the altar is just a pile of rocks. Without structure, the altar is just a pile of rocks. It's nothing that's formed. It's nothing that is used. It no longer is a tool. It's just an obscurity. It's just something that is there in the way. It's something that is is broken down and represents things of the past, but nothing of the future. Stones speak of structure. When you think about stones, you automatically go to thinking about structure. They also speak of this. They also speak of the uniqueness of structure. Why is that? Because stones are always unique unto themselves. There's not one stone that looks like another stone. They're all uniquely made, uniquely formed. And so they speak of structure, but they speak of structures that are unique unto themselves. 1 Peter 2 and 5 says this, You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect. That's why I said it must be established on the name of the Lord. He is the chief cornerstone. Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. This is the problem with Baal's prophets is they stumble being disobedient to the very word that they were appointed as the people of Israel. They were appointed to a word. And that word was that the Lord would be Jehovah of the country and he would be the leader of the nation, that he would be the king. They rejected that word and now they have become in opposition to the very king they're supposed to be serving. Elijah here builds the altar with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. And God is building the altar today with living stones that represent the people of God. The altar is not something that is just here. But the altar is something that resides in here. It's something that is established in your life as part of the church. You are the church of the living God. You are the church of the living God. Not structure, not wood, not stone, nor brick. But you are the church of the living God this morning. We don't need wood. We don't need stone today to build an altar. We need people hungry for Him and for transformation in their lives to build the altar. Why? Because you are the church. To establish structure in the altar, we must establish order to the altar. An altar is built when structure is put to what was once a pile of rocks. And once we put structure to what was once a pile of rocks, we see effectiveness being established. We see order being established. We see a means by which the Holy Spirit can operate. The altar is effective when order is established. Without order, the altar is a source of confusion and chaos. Because when you establish the structure of the altar, you secure the sanctity of the altar. When you establish the structure of the altar, you secure the sanctity of the altar. What do you mean? You ensure through structure that what takes place in the altar is from the Almighty God and that nothing is established or built without Him being the chief cornerstone in every part of the process. Are y'all tracking with me today? Okay. 
1 Corinthians 14.32, just to back up what I'm saying. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What churches? All the churches of the saints. You are listening. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. You mean to tell me that there needs to be order to the altar? No. I mean to tell you what God's already said. And it says here clearly that all things, all things, all things, and all the churches, underline those alls in your Bible, because that speaks to us, is done decently in order. He sets the stones in order. He cut, uh, this is speaking of Elijah. Elijah sets the stones in order. He cuts the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. He set the altar in order by adding structure to the altar. Who did that? Elijah did that. As a pastor of this church, it is my responsibility and duty to always set the altar in order because we will need structure to advance with God. Well, pastor, God should be the one to add structure and order to the service. I've got news for you. He wasn't the one who added structure and order in the text. Elijah did that. Elijah, his appointed servant, added structure and order in the text. It was Elijah who set the stones in order. It was Elijah who cut the bull in pieces. It was Elijah who laid it on the wood. This is God's expectation of his servants, his priests, and his people. And it will always be. In setting the structure for the altar, Elijah also sets the structure for a miracle. 1 Kings 18.32 says, He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed and said, Fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt, burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. Also filled the trench with the water. You remember him digging the trench around the altar. Elijah set the stage for the miraculous. And once the stage was set for the miraculous, the miraculous came forth. We don't see miracles take place anymore because we don't set the stage for miracles. What do you mean by setting the stage for miracles? I mean this. Elijah dealt with the same what-ifs we deal with. Elijah had the same what-ifs running through his mind that you have in your mind. Well, what if I step out here and God doesn't show up? What if I do all this and then it doesn't work out? What if I fail? What if I, uh, you know, somebody comes against me? What if this happens or that happens? He dealt with the same what-ifs. What if God doesn't accept this sacrifice? What if I look foolish? We can what-if ourselves out of every single miracle God wants to do for our lives. And so we've got to get rid of that. Set the stage for a miracle. It's so awesome to me that Elijah was such a confident, bold man of God that he was willing to dig a trench around there, pour water on the altars, and trust that God would not only send the fire, but would consume every single part of this setup. That God would do a miracle that would set apart every other thing these people had seen. If God will do that for Elijah, will he not also do that for us? I believe he will. Listen, you've got to have some fire to start wet stuff. We were on the river just a few weeks ago camping out, and it rained from the time we got there till the time we left. 
And one night, the first night we were there, we didn't get to eat supper because it put our fire out. And we're sitting there freezing death, soaking wet. I spent two, three, four hours from like 1 o'clock in the morning until like 3 or 4 o'clock the, the rest, the earlier in the morning, later in the morning, whatever, trying to build a fire. It is hard to get wet stuff started. Elijah knows that. But he knows also the more dramatic stage setting you have, the more dramatic the display of God's power can be. And so he's pouring it down. He's dousing it with water. He's removing any doubts that anything is set up other than the miraculous showing of an almighty God. Don't what if yourself to death. Get out of the way and let God do a miracle in your life. I'm going to ask if they'll come to the piano this morning and begin to play. Establishing the altar requires me to establish the symbolism of the altar for me and for future generations. When's the last time you shared the story with your kids or your grandkids what God had done for you in the altar? When's the last time you had an experience in the altar? Because you can't share what you haven't yet experienced. And I'm just saying to all of us in this place, God's here to encounter you. God's here for you to experience Him. It's not just something we need in our heads. We need to have Him in our hearts. And those heart moments only come through experiences with Him. And so we need that. We need to be able to tell our children and our grandchildren what God has done for us and be able to say it with such fervor and passion because of the experience we've had that they feel what we have already experienced. My great concern as a pastor in this season of the world is that generations are not getting the experiences that we've had any longer. They're not translating to next generations. A lot of times it's because we have, re, we have ceased to be relevant and we've alienated them by our lack of relevance. But at the same time, it's because we are not sharing and teaching and beckoning those to come and be a part of the process with us. Dad, when's the last time you brought your children with you to the altar and prayed with them and let them see? You don't even have to pray with them. Let them see what God's doing for you. Mom, when's the last time your kids were woke up in the morning because you were praying in the Spirit in your room? And you saw that there was something legitimate and something real in their lives. We need to share those experiences with others. I'm just telling you as a pastor, you know, I believe this verse means so much more than just what we see on the surface when he says, what shall it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? We know that speaks on the surface of material gains and things like that, but I've always looked at it as a father and I've thought, you know, what shall it profit me as a pastor, as a father, if I live my life to the full for the Lord and my children are lost in the process? What has it profited me if the number one thing that I'm responsible for is neglected as I meet the needs of others. And I'm just saying to everybody in this house, every dad in this place, 
every husband in this place, and I'm speaking to dads and husbands right now, it is your responsibility to ensure that your family has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Dads that lead in this have a 70% success rate of their children and their wives following them. When wives are the spiritual leader in their home, there's only a 40% chance that their families will fall suit. It's men's responsibility. I said it's men's responsibility. And wives, you as partners need to support that, come alongside them, and help it to be accomplished. Don't be a weight to that process. Don't be fighting against that process. You align yourself. If moms and dads both go, it's like a 90% success rate. There's power in coming together. Establishing the altar requires me to establish the symbolism of the altar for future generations for myself. And it requires we establish structure in the altar that releases order and effectiveness. Effectiveness. I told you this last week or a couple weeks ago that the litmus test for authentic worship and connection is if the attention is on him and not on me. And so what order are we talking about? We're making sure that everything that is done in this is about glorifying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's it. That's it. Would you stand with me today? This is what I'm going to ask you to do as a church. I'm going to ask all of you that are here and willing to embrace the things that have been spoken today and say, you know, I want to have those moments that I can share with my children. I want the altar established not only in my church, but in my personal life and in my family and in my community. I want you to come and gather across the front with me today just as a sign of unity. We're gathering the 12 stones of one nation, one tribe, one people, and we're making some declarations together as that tribe and that people. In a few weeks, we're going to be rolling out another page uh, to the website and then also providing a lot of material here for you about devotions. Because we understand that if the altar is going to be effective in public, it has to be effective in private. And we have to establish some devotions in our homes. We have to establish spiritual leadership in our homes. And all this other stuff will line up, I promise you. And so we're going to be doing that for you to help you and equip you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning, then I would encourage you to come and see me after service. I would love to pray with you and lead you to Christ. Would you just join your hearts with me this morning? Pray in agreement with me. Father, today we stand as a people united with one heart, one mind, one accord. We desire to see the altar established in our personal lives, Lord. We desire to see the altar established in this church, God. We desire to establish the symbolism of what it means to us. And what it means to us, God, we want to translate that to what it will mean to future generations. Lord, it doesn't mean anything if this dies with me. But Lord, it must go on beyond me. Lord, I'm asking that today you help us also to establish the structure and the order of the altar. 
God, we don't want just a pile of rocks. We don't want something that's meaningless. We want something that the Holy Spirit can operate in, and He always operates in process. So, Father, help us to embrace that, that wisdom, that spiritual understanding, and help us to allow you to be released in a way, an effective way, in a way that we have never seen before. Miracles are coming forth in Jesus' name. Transformation is springing forth in Jesus' name. We love you today, God. I pray your blessing upon every single person that's here. I pray, God, that you just continue to show yourself great in their lives. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We would love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you would like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street in Burt Burnett, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Down on your shore, you say, Come to the river.